DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an Associate Professor and the Academic Dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California. He also serves as the Academic Advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is also the author of Hidden Mountain, Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we discuss the writings of St. Teresa of Avila, whose spiritual classic, The Way of Perfection, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you once again for joining me. No, it's great to be with you, Chris. We're coming towards the end of the way of perfection, but actually it's very much a beginning. Mm. It, it seems as though we're closing the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's almost as though we're beginning. She's actually starting us out. We're not coming to a conclusion, but it's actually an opening and a door of a much greater experience, isn't it? What, what she wants is, in the way of perfection, she's entrusting the Lord's Prayer to her community as a means of spiritual growth. And so what she's hoping is that her community will pray the Lord's Prayer in more and more meaningful ways. They will go deeper and deeper into the mystery of this prayer. Uh, she wants to leave the prayer, entrust the prayer with them, not in the sense of, okay, now everything's been said that can be said about the prayer. She wants to entrust it with them as a way to make a new beginning each time they pray it. And so in the, the latter part of this work, she shifts from talking about prayer and the Eucharist as feeding prayer, and now she's going to talk about the struggle with evil. In a way, in the Lord's Prayer, you get a drink from the water from the beginning, but you have the struggle with evil at the end because in this life, that's part of our Christian existence. It's, it's very much a battle. And so in an earlier conversation, we talked about how she sees that we're on a journey and we have a wild horse and we need to tame the wild horse. And she ta- spent a log- lot of time talking about the renunciation and the kinds of friendships that we need to be able to tame this horse so that we can begin to ride it. She talked about Jesus as the one who refreshes us, so we're on a journey to him who alone can quench our thirst, he who is the fount of living waters. But in between the place where our thirst is going to be quenched and the wild horse that we finally have tamed enough to be able to ride it safely, there are enemies along the way. And so the end of her reflections on the Lord's Prayer is how do you deal with these enemies? And it's an interesting thing. You know, she's brought us into, inducted us into a conversation about the beginning of contemplative prayer with kind of the encouragement that there's so much more here and that the Eucharist feeds us for this so much more in contemplative prayer. But when she ends this, she talks about a struggle with evil. And in the struggle with evil, how important fear of the Lord is. And she gives us a sense that 
the struggle with evil is not like I think, well, I only struggle for so long and then I don't have struggle anymore. Or that the struggle with evil is something purely accidental. Oh, you'd really be a saint now if you could just bypass this. Rather, the struggle with evil, with temptations and the evil one, with forgiving other people, these kinds of struggles are actually part of our journey into the depths of the Lord's Prayer. They're part of our journey, in fact, into contemplative prayer, into the very heights of mystical prayer. Mystical wisdom and forgiving others, mystical wisdom and dealing with temptation, mystical wisdom and victory over the evil one are intimately tied together. Without the fear of the Lord that is involved in these struggles that I just listed, we will never really grow in our intimacy with the Lord. So we started in the beginning of the way, it's really an exhortation to, towards humility and detachment, and it ends with an exhortation to a proper fear of the Lord so that we can fight this battle well. And so it's a very interesting journey that she's taken us on, and it's a very interesting way that she's presented the spiritual life to us. The perfection of the Christian life consists in charity, friendship, love of God. And she refers to that throughout the work, but she's very concerned about the things that protect that friendship, humility, detachment uh, from the very beginning, perseverance and determination as we come into awareness of who we are before the Lord in the beginning of the Our Father, uh, so that we can cry out Our Father, recollection, pondering the presence of the Lord, a recollection that disposes us to encountering Jesus in a deeper way, and then the need for the Eucharist to support us and to strengthen us for that kind of prayer. And now, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord that allows us to realize the victory of good over evil in our lives. There are those out there who are really uncomfortable with how she speaks about her own sinfulness. She repeats over and over again, I am a wretched sinner. I am the most guilty of all the guilty. I am... And sometimes they see that as, well, that was medieval period and they were just too hard on, and she really wasn't that bad. But the sense is, you know, if you really get into the way of perfection, this is not a woman who despises herself. She despises sin. Mm. Well, and uh, that's, a, that's a very beautiful reflection and requires a little bit of a comment because today we live at a time where a lot of people are self-loathing uh, they're filled with shame, and they beat themselves up, and they listen to a lot of tapes in their head that are not from God, like the tape that uh, I don't matter, or what I think doesn't count, or I don't count, or I'm not good, and I am not loved. So they play those tapes, and then they reinforce those tapes with their evil behaviors, uh, whether it could be like internet pornography, for example or it might be not being honest uh, with the people that we love or the people that we're working with, or it might be something where we're sneaking and not being vulnerable, but uh, protecting secrets in our hearts. And, our, and that evil behavior reinforces the sense of shame, and it's a vicious cycle that goes over and over. 
And so I call that wallowing in self-loathing. And that is not what Teresa of Avila is doing. Mm-hmm. Teresa of Avila, the context for her awareness that she's a miserable sinner is not the context that she's falling into sin over and over and over again. And so she must not be very good because she's displeasing God uh, over and over again. She knows because of her devotion to Jesus how much the Father loves her. And only as you begin to see how much he loves you can you realize that your weakness and your voids and your inadequacies and your failures are where his love is waiting for you. He loves you so much that he understands your sins and why you have fallen. He understands that these sins and your fallenness do not ultimately define who you are. You are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. When you first were exposed to grave sin as a child, uh, when you were sinned against because your parents abandoned you or because a person in a place of trust abused you in some way, you were exposed to things that you ought never been exposed to. God wasn't sitting in the corner blaming you and chastising you and ashamed of you. That's not the God we believe in. Jesus Christ was weeping with you, and he was saying, Oh, I am so sorry that this happened to you. This should never have happened to you. And I am so sorry, my son, my daughter. I am sorry that I could not protect you from this. I am sorry that you had to experience this. You were immersed in this, and I'm sorry that you have to carry this around. Maybe it was an image that you weren't supposed to see. Maybe it was a fight between your mother and father. Maybe it was some other abusive ugliness, the absenteeism of an alcoholic parent. I can only imagine all of us have been touched by those things. God does not sit in judgment over us as an angry master waiting to beat us up for the first time we fall. He is brokenhearted and he aches for us, just like any father or mother would ache over her son or daughter who was struggling with something that they weren't ready to deal with. Any father or mother who can't ache over their child who is struggling to deal with something that they weren't ready to deal with, that would be a very insensitive mother or father. God is not an insensitive parent. He does not lack in compassion. He knows our sins and he knows why we sinned even before we sinned. And he knows that we've been sinned against. And he knows that the ways that we've been sinned against have caused us to sin. And so he's heartbroken over that, but he's never stopped loving us. He's never stopped yearning for us. He desires that we might be healed He desires that we might know his mercy. He desires that he loves us. And he repeats to our heart over and over and over again, I love you. I love you. I love you more than this. Don't let this cause you to forget my love. Don't let this cast doubt on my love. I have suffered everything that you might know my love. 
and I've suffered this thing too, and this thing is not more powerful than my love for you. This thing that you've done out of shame is not more powerful than my love for you. I will stand in this hell with you until you'll turn your heart and come back to me. Any soul that knows that, that opens themselves and makes themselves vulnerable to that, they're not afraid to say, I am a vulnerable wretch because in my wretchedness God stands with me. I am filled with misery and I am a horrible sinner, but in my sin my Lord God has beheld me and sees me and has rescued me. The reason why Teresa of Avila is not afraid to call herself a sinner is because she has a great Savior. She declares her sinfulness in order that we might see the Savior. She is not self-loathing. She is loved. She is loved beyond measure, and she can't, she can't fathom the depths or the extent of this love. But her failures, her voids, her wickedness, her inadequacies, whenever she turns her mind to those things, whenever she gets a hint, a shadow of just how loved she is, a soul that knows that it is secure in the love of God, a soul that knows that it is the beloved son, the beloved daughter of the Father, a soul that is able to rest in that love. That soul is not afraid to admit at what it's done. It's not afraid to be vulnerable about its failures or its inadequacies. It's not afraid to face the voids and the pain in life because it knows that those voids and those pains and those failures are not the defining moment of who they are. And so they're, they're able to admit things. They're able to take responsibility for things. They're able to bear the pain of being wrong because they know that that's not everything. This is where Teresa of Avila is. And this is why The Way of Perfection is such a powerful book. The Way of Perfection puts at the heart of the book, and this is our Father, the fact that the Father loves us and that no matter what we've done or how miserable we are, Heaven is our true home. Heaven is where we belong. And it puts in the center of all of this the fact that we can fall in love with the will of God, that the will of God is that beautiful. It's not an extrinsic imposition and obligation from without. It's something so beautiful we can fall in love with it. If we find ourselves white-knuckling it through the day to so trying to bear do our Christian duty, because we've, we're supposed to forgive this person or go to church or go to confession because this is what a good Christian does. Well, that's a heck of a way to try to be a disciple. And it's not the way our master would have it. Our master would much rather than look at what you're doing and how hard it is. He'd much rather you, like Teresa of Avila, turn your glance towards him. See the one who has loved you to the end. Look into his eyes because he is gazing on you right now with love, with a love that nothing, no power on heaven or earth can overcome. There is nothing that you have done or you will do that can take his loving gaze away from you. He is fixated on you as his beloved son and daughter, and he yearns for you to come home. You will look into his eyes. You will find the courage to come home. And then there is no more white knuckling it. There is the embrace of the Father. 
There is no more white-knuckling it when you gaze into the eyes of Jesus who loves you so much. There's the whisper of his love in your ear, in your heart, and you will never live the same way again. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. The Memorari Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Especially in, in these closing chapters of The Way of Perfection, and again in talking about temptation and evil, she is so very much a spiritual mother. She speaks like a mother would, not only to her sisters, but to us, to acknowledge, look at the traps that you can fall into. Look at the temptations not in an accusatory tone, but more beware of false humility. Beware of honors. Here are the lures that will take you away. Guard yourself, because the devil is real. And these desires in our hearts and the lies, like you just explained, that assault us, you have to see those. She puts that out there for all of us. So the word humility, the Latin root of it, is humus, which means 
earth. True humility is not afraid of the lowest place. It's not afraid to realize that of myself I'm not capable of anything good. But because God loves me and has died for me, I am capable right now of responding to that love. And the feeblest effort that I make to respond to his love actually delights him. That's where humility lives. A false humility is the kind of humility that is driven by what others think of us. Uh, Behind this false humility is always a kind of presumption, presumption that I'm not as in need of a savior as I am. And then that presumption is always followed also by the shame that somehow, while everybody else is a happy Christian, I can't be one because I'm not measuring up to this humble ego that I projected that I want everybody to see. That's living in illusions. That's a, and there's no reality established there. True humility, when you're able to lower yourself, you're able to be completely reliant on the Lord to raise you up. Well, everybody will think I'm a fool. Everybody will see that I'm incompetent. No one will esteem me. Well, when you're in love with the Lord, you don't care whether anybody esteems you. You don't care about the fact that it is your fault that something's gone wrong. You're, you're just not preoccupied. You can bear the pain of being wrong. You can bear the pain of being mistaken because that wrong, that mistake, isn't who you are, really. Who you are is you are a son or daughter loved by God. It's a paradox, this true humility This true humility sees at once that I am incapable of anything and sees its wretchedness, but it doesn't wallow in the wretchedness. It looks to God to raise it up. Probably one of the most beautiful images to help get to what true humility is, is in the writings of Therese of Lisieux. She wrote a book called uh, The Story of a Soul. It's comprised of three manuscripts, the first part of the manuscript is about her childhood memories leading up to her entry into Carmel as a Carmelite nun in her early teenage years. And the latter part of her work deals with her last years of religious life while she's dying of a tuberculosis or she's begun to die. But the middle section is very interesting. It's a letter that she wrote to one of her sisters to explain the oblation she made of herself to merciful love. In this oblation, she prays something very daring. She says, Lord, give me the blessings that everybody else doesn't want. Let me have those blessings so that through me these blessings might come unto the world. Because if I don't receive them, they'll just be lost forever. So give me those blessings so that through me other people might be able to benefit from them. It's a peculiar kind of offering. How is it that someone can dare to make an offering? She said, She goes on, she says, this is my oblation of Holocaust offering. Now, a Holocaust means a offering completely consumed in the flames. So in Leviticus chapter 1, Moses talks about what a Holocaust is. And it means an offering where there's nothing left. It's completely consumed in the flames. I want to be that kind of victim. I 
offer myself to you, Lord, is that kind of, let me be completely consumed in the flames of your love. Let the blessings that nobody else wants, let those blessings be poured out on me so that people who are far from you and those who have hardened their hearts against you might be blessed through me with these blessings that you wanted them to have, but they've rejected. Let that be what I receive. Now, this is a really bold thing to offer. It's a daring thing to offer. Who is she to have this kind of audacity? Does she really think she can receive all the things that nobody else wants? Well, she explains to her sister in a letter that's in the story of the soul, the fundamental disposition that making this offering requires. And, and I believe that this fundamental disposition is true humility opposed to the false humility that, that Teresa of Avila is trying to protect her sisters against. So what is this true humility? She said, well, I see myself as a little sparrow and I'm on the ground. I can look up at the sun and I, as I look up at the sun, I see all the great angels and saints like eagles flying around the sun. And the sun is the Holy Trinity. So here's the saints and angels flying around the Holy Trinity like eagles flying around the sun. And that's where I want to be. But I realize, at the same time I, I realize this, my wings, I can't fly at all. I can't even get off the ground. So she thinks, how is it that the Lord would put this desire in my heart but not give me the wings to be able to fly? How can the Lord give me this desire but not give me the ability to realize this dream that he's planted in me? It's the same way then in our lives. In our lives, we need to recognize that we're on the ground, the humus. We need to realize that we're of the earth and we can't fly by ourselves. We can't be self-reliant. We can't be self-sufficient. We need God. And this is what she realizes. She said, God would not have placed this desire in my heart if he did not have a way to fulfill it. And the only way he can possibly fulfill this desire that is in my heart, if he, the great eagle, swoops down and picks me up with his own pinions and carries me to the sun himself with his own wings. So it's his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his life that will lift me up. It's all about him. I merit nothing because I really didn't contribute this. So God doesn't owe me anything at all. All God is doing is fulfilling his own plan. He's the one who put this desire in my heart. So he's the one who's going to have to pick me up. And my job before this great mystery, before the eagle uh, who is Jesus, before him, is to be surrendered, to be willing to be picked up. That's what true humility is all about. And I think Teresa of Avila is talking about false humility, which is can be a huge problem in any community, including a family. False humility can manifest itself in, you know, kind of the victim soul. Oh, poor me. I'm the one who always gets dumped on and has to carry the bucket for everybody else. And and you're filled with feeling sorry for yourself and everybody's taking advantage of me and you feel frustrated and you're nurturing all those little resentments and bitterness. That's not humility. That's not being in the last place. That's not being surrendered to the Lord. 
No, what's really going on there is you're playing a little power game with everybody in your family. That's, that's all about playing little power trips. True humility is, Lord, I'm in a situation right now that I can't possibly bear by myself, and I'm going to fail a thousand times. But though I fail a thousand times, I'm going to wait for you anyway. Though I'm inadequate to this task, I'm going to wait for your deliverance. And I will stay here and try to practice patience the best I can, try to be as gentle as I possibly can, though I fail a thousand times. It's not about me. It's about you. I know that you put this desire in my heart to love the members of my family and hold nothing back. I know you've put this desire in my heart to be selfless. I know you've put this desire in my heart to do something truly beautiful for the people in my life. And I can't. (laughs) All I can do is be surrendered to you. So you're going to have to be the one who comes and fulfills this desire that lives in my heart. And my job is to persevere in waiting for you. And I wait for you every time instead of being impatient or acting without gentleness. I choose to do those things. And then those times that I fail and I am impatient, I get overcome with sorrow, or I fail in gentleness and I let my anger come out. Every time those things happen, rather than beat myself up over them and fall into self-loathing and in the little pity pot about how I'm never going to be a saint, rather than doing that, I'm going to renounce that. And I'm going to choose to believe in the mercy of God. And I'm going to start again. And I'm going to raise my eyes towards the sun. And I'm going to look for the great eagle. And I'm going to wait for him because he will come and he will pick me up. Because at the end of the day, this isn't about me. It's all about him and his glory. And his glory is enough for me. His providence is enough for me. And I will persevere in waiting for him no matter how many times I fall. I'm going to persevere and wait for him. Each time I fall is just another opportunity for him to show his mercy again, to show his glory again. And I'm going to let him do that. I'm going to give him space in my life and in my family, in my community, my parish, to do just that. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. Most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Willis.